Seven Practices of Effective Ministry, Chapters 9 and 16. Chapter 9, Managing Your Way to Victory. Pete laughed. Ray, I've really enjoyed our time tonight. I hope it's been helpful. Very helpful. But we're not done, are we? We've only covered six practices. You said there were seven. Yeah, but I don't think number seven is going to be as hard for you as I first thought. In fact, you've been doing it for the past couple of hours. Sitting in the owner's box and being waited on hand and foot, I think I can get used to practice number seven. Well, it's not all it's cracked up to be, and it's also not practice number seven. Pete said laughing, practice number seven is called work on it. Work on it? Ray repeated. That's right. You see, Ray, most leaders see themselves as part of the system. And that's bad how? If a leader, you in this case, spends all of his time working in the system, then how is he going to know when the system is the problem? Ray knew the question wasn't rhetorical. He thought for a moment and answered, He won't unless he works on the system too. Exactly. That's why the practice is to work on it. It's what you and I have been doing tonight. We've been looking at a few ideas that can help you evaluate your organization's effectiveness. Look down there in the dugout. Do you see that guy with the clipboard? Yeah, he's a pitcher, isn't he? Yep. In fact, he's pitching tomorrow night. Right now, he's charting the hitters in tonight's game. He's looking at the tendencies, habits, strengths, and weaknesses that will help him when he pitches. Every pitcher does that. Ray had watched enough baseball in his life to know that major league teams kept up with every conceivable statistic. I read somewhere that you can't manage what you can't measure. Is that what you're talking about? In a way, yeah, but it's more than just measuring. It's carving out blocks of time to evaluate what you've measured to see what is working and what is not. A lot of organizations collect a lot of data. But then they file it, or worse yet, they print it in a four-color annual report, and then they file it. The higher you are in an organization, the more important this becomes. Why is that? Ray knew he should know the answer, but he didn't. Because when something goes wrong, your first tendency will be to blame someone. And not only will you blame them, you might fire them, when in fact there was an organizational problem, not an individual problem. You can lose good people and the confidence of your team when that happens. But it's hard enough to get everything done as it is. How do you find the time to work on it? You find the time to eat and sleep, don't you? You have to see this practice as that important. You have to eat and sleep to survive physically. You have to work on your organization for it to survive. Practice 7. Work on it. So I need to carve out time to evaluate and plan. Ray made a note. Oh, Pete added, and don't forget to carve out time to have fun, too. Part of working on it is carving out time to celebrate your victories. That's why we give out rings and spray champagne when we win a championship. We celebrate the fact that we've won. You've got to make sure your people get to celebrate their victories. Or they may join another team, Ray finished the thought. And that's the last thing we want to see happen, Pete added. Ray could remember several times in the early years of Meadowland Community Church when goals were met or great plans were realized. At the time, it seemed like there was no time to celebrate. There was always more to achieve, and Ray would launch into the next goal. How many people had moved on to other teams because he didn't stop to celebrate with them? Speaking of victories, Pete broke the silence. How about we watch the end of this game and hopefully celebrate with my team? 
Do you think I've learned enough for one night? Ray asked. You haven't learned anything yet, but you have heard a lot. Remember, these are only practices to make you more effective. They won't work in an environment that lacks clear values or hard work. But if you put them into practice, they can help you stay on track. We'll see what you've learned in a few months. Well, Pete, I only know one way for you to tell me if I've learned anything, and that's for you to come around to the church, for a little while anyway. Ray wanted to put the full court press on Pete, but he knew better than to think he could use a hard sell on a master salesman. If there's one thing you can be sure of, Ray, it's that you never know where I might turn up, Pete said, smiling. After all, you never dreamed I'd be here tonight. I never dreamed I'd be here tonight, but I'm glad I was, Ray said genuinely. Thanks, Pete. Ray and Pete watched the rest of the game like any other fans. Any other fans with front row seats and access to the home's team locker room, that is. As Ray stood waiting for the valet to return his eight-year-old minivan and, with it, Ray, back to reality, he thought about what he had just experienced. So much about the evening was a surprise the canceled meeting, the VIP treatment, and especially his time with Pete. But the biggest surprise of all was rediscovering a passion for ministry that had been suffocated under a load of complexity. Could these seven practices really make his ministry more effective? Ray pulled out of the stadium parking lot and was once again sitting in traffic on the Meadowland Parkway. As was the case earlier, his head was filled with thoughts of the church. Nothing had really changed. A voice in his head told him. All the problems that had been there before would still be there tomorrow morning. As Ray thought through the challenges that lay ahead, one change had already occurred. The wrinkles on his forehead were gone, and there was a slight smile on his lips. Chapter 16. Practice number 7. Work on it. Take time to evaluate your work and to celebrate your wins. Baseball's annual spring training is a reminder that even the best in the game need a time of focused training and practice. All you have to do is watch one spring training game and you realize that the fundamentals tend to break down with even the best players if they don't work on their skills. And that's why Barry Bonds has a batting coach. Think about it. Arguably the best hitter in the game today and one of the best of all time, Bonds turns to someone else to help him analyze his swing. Bonds recognizes that it isn't enough to play the game. You have to work on your game, too. Those of us who work in ministry are no different. No matter how long we've served, no matter how many sermons we've preached, no matter how many successful ministries we've launched, if we are not consistently evaluating both our performance and our strategies, at some point we will begin to swing and miss. Self-evaluation is not a new concept. The book of Genesis records that God set aside time for evaluating his own work. At the end of the six long days of creating, Scripture tells us that before he rested, he evaluated. He saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Now, God obviously had an advantage in that all he creates is good. And so the evaluation probably didn't take too long, but he looked at it nonetheless. Later, we learn that he evaluated Adam's situation and saw that it was not good for man to be alone. And we are all grateful that God took the time to work on the system that day. The point is, no matter how good the system, a consistent time of evaluation can produce tremendous benefits. We call this creating margin. Andy has challenged us as a staff as well as personally 
to create margin in our lives. Margin does not happen accidentally, and it doesn't happen automatically. Margin has to be pursued. Building margin into the calendar. For most of us, our margin is what's left over after we've finished doing everything we have to do. It's an afterthought. But for margin to be effective, it has to be an integral part of your overall plan. At the outset, you have to schedule consistent times to break away from the battle and assess your plan as well as your performance. No matter how hard you try, it simply can't be done as you go. I worked for a few years in a church that was so large, we had painters on staff. The paint crew would start at one end of the campus, and by the time they completed every room in the church, it was time to start over. I'll never forget the day they painted my office. I walked in that morning to the most noxious fumes I ever encountered. I elected to duck into my office and grab a few things before beating a hasty retreat. While there, I asked one of the painters how he could stand to work around the fumes. What fumes, he said. Sometimes it's hard to smell something if you're surrounded by it every day. It's like coming home after a week's vacation. When you walk in the door, you recognize an odor that had become so familiar you had stopped smelling it. You can't evaluate something if you stay in the middle of it too long. You can't help but miss some things. Things you've seen for so long that you just don't see them anymore. Things that have started to decay and you've become accustomed to the smell. This is why we have carved out time in our schedule that is not given to the daily routine of working in ministry. We place a high premium on retreats and off-site meetings where our staff can get away, step back, and take a big-picture view of things. A sidebar, time to act like then is now from North Point's playbook. One of the most important things we learned early on is that if we were ever going to be a big church that made a big impact, we would have to start acting like one even before we were. We started doing leadership team planning retreats, even when the leadership team was practically the entire staff. It wasn't that we needed to get away from everyone because we were everyone, but we knew that one day we wouldn't. And so we established an annual off-site event where we celebrated what had happened the previous year and planned for the next. At one of the first of these off-site events, Andy challenged the six of us to develop a staff organizational chart for a church of 5,000 people. This was when our congregation was a fraction of that number. But we designed the chart and inserted our staff names in every box. This gave us a blueprint to grow by. And as we grew, we slowly replaced our names with the amazing team that we have today. Once we reached 5,000 in attendance, you can guess what the focus of the retreat was that year. A chart for a church of 10,000. Weekly story time. At North Point, we have made evaluation a part of our weekly routine. Every Monday morning, the seven members of our leadership team get together to work on it. The value of this meeting is difficult to overstate. In addition to discussing the issues and opportunities that present themselves each week, we're able to share firsthand the successes and failures that occur in each of our areas, as well as give input and insight into other areas. The relational value of this meeting alone makes it worth the time as we speak into one another's lives. We also include other church staff in this meeting in order to expose them to the ideas and dynamics of the leadership team. Monday is also the day we meet as a staff, the entire staff, which is pretty big now, at which time Andy asks everyone the same question, what did you see, hear, or experience this week? 
that makes you feel we've successfully fulfilled our mission. The stories we share in response tell us that we have successfully worked on it. We recognize that when the stories stop coming, it means we are no longer being effective. Additionally, every one of our creative meetings where we plan an environment includes an evaluation phase when we look at our effectiveness in the previous week. During our worship experience evaluation time, we perform an intensive autopsy of the service, ensuring that we can repeat those things that work and hopefully avoid repeating the ones that didn't. These small but specific times of evaluation are critical pieces of margin that have been created and are carefully guarded. Calendaring margin goes beyond scheduling a specific time for evaluation. It may also involve stopping a program or activity for a strategic period of time. For example, attendance at many of our programs slows considerably or stops altogether during the summer months. This gives our leadership extended time to evaluate the programs and often realign them. Just like a car, a ministry can easily get out of alignment. These subtle shifts of direction are difficult to see when you're heading down the road at top speed. But by scheduling an extended downtime, the leadership can put the ministry up on the rack and check it out thoroughly. These downtimes also provide a much-needed break for a huge number of volunteers. It's far easier to go into the fall all fired up when you've had the summer to recuperate. Another example of calendaring margin is the unheard-of decision by our elders to cancel services on the Sunday following Christmas. On that Sunday, we simply shut down. We do this for two reasons. First, as a thank you to the thousands of volunteers it takes to run a Sunday morning here. And second, to protect the quality of our product. So many of our volunteers travel on that weekend that we find it difficult to maintain the level of excellence to which we are accustomed. But by scheduling this closure and announcing it to everyone, we are able to take a potentially negative situation and turn it into a positive one. We have discovered that in these moments of created margin, we get some of our best ideas. We are able to solve some of our most complex problems and refocus our energies in a new way that makes a huge difference in our future ministry. A sidebar, a learning organization from North Point's playbook. In his book, The Fifth Discipline, Peter Senge coined the term the learning organization. One of the primary aspects of working on it is to continue to learn as an organization. Our leadership team, as well as some of the other ministry teams in the church, often read through business and leadership books as a group. Nearly half of the time in our Monday morning meeting is spent discussing the current book and its application to our circumstances. Here are some of the books we've read. The E-Myth by Michael Gerber. The Fifth Discipline by Peter Senge. Focus by Al Reese. Built to Last by Jim Collins. Good to Great by Jim Collins. The Five Temptations of a CEO by Patrick Licioni. The Five Dysfunctions of a Team by Patrick Licioni. The 80-20 Principle by Richard Koch. Paradigms by Joel Arthur Bobber. What the Best CEOs Know by Jeffrey Krames. Courageous Leadership by Bill Hybels. Many of the seven practices in this book are direct applications of principles and ideas that have grown out of our leadership team book discussions. Confronting the Facts There's nothing like a bad day on the field to produce good copy in the sports page the next day. It's amazing how an honest evaluation can lead to some pretty ugly observations. 
Ideally, your organization will be much like creation when God took time to evaluate. You will look at it and behold, it was very good. Or you might end up like the rest of us, confronted with some of not very pretty facts. The fact is that when people are involved, there are always areas that need improvement. Sometimes it's as simple as improving performance. I say simple because we have found that performance issues are easier to see and fix than our system issues. When you have carved out margin to work on a specific area, you have created an environment where you can turn over the rocks and confront what Jim Collins calls the brutal facts. During such times, everyone on our staff is encouraged to make suggestions, and everyone takes suggestions. These are often times of intense dialogue and debate, and at times there are tears. There are no sacred cows or sacred programs. Everything is up for debate and must be defended against our mission and values. This is one of the ways we stay aligned with our purpose. At the end of the day, when the dust settles, we have asked the tough questions and hopefully arrived at the right answers. A word of warning. Common sense tells us that an open and honest debate creates the potential for negative impact on relationships. In order to keep your staff from paying the price relationally, you must develop an atmosphere of trust throughout your team. We use a word picture of each of us carrying two buckets at all times. One is full of water. The other is full of gasoline. When honest debate leads us to differences of opinion, it's a good thing. But when it leads to gossip and backbiting, it can be deadly. There needs to be a mutual commitment among the staff that all fires are to be doused with a bucket of water and not fed with a bucket of gasoline. If your staff will choose to trust one another and assume the best, you will have an atmosphere where debate can take its full and natural course without fear of retribution or reprisal. Celebrating the Stories A key thing to remember about creating margin in your organization is that it isn't enough to evaluate. You also have to celebrate. It never fails to move me when I see a baseball team celebrating a World Series victory. I am moved because in those moments of sheer joy are unfolded the stories of thousands of hours of sacrifice, practice, and effort. The story of millions of Little League fielding grounders and millions of fathers throwing thousands of batting practice pitches are expressed in those moments of unbridled celebration. At North Point, we not only evaluate our effectiveness by sharing stories, we share our stories to celebrate those involved. It is a unique chance for ministries to publicly acknowledge and thank their peers who've played a pivotal role in making a great story happen. We've seen many people from our facilities and administration areas move to tears when they hear a frontline ministry share how their faithfulness in small things has resulted in a life being changed in a big way. We have also made the celebration of stories a central part of our Sunday morning worship experience. Whenever someone comes to be baptized, we show a one to two minute video of that person telling his or her story. These people often take this opportunity to publicly thank those whom God has used to make a difference in their lives. We are then able to say to the congregation, many of whom are unbelievers, that these stories are why we do what we do. If you want a behavior repeated, then you need to reward it. Few things are more rewarding for a volunteer than hearing his or her name shared as part of someone's life-changing story. A sidebar, a night to remember from Net. North Point's playbook. One of the biggest challenges we face is adequately and appropriately honoring a large number of volunteers. 
in our family ministry division, which encompasses thousands of volunteers working with everyone from preschool kids to married adults, we have solved this dilemma through our annual Strategic Service Awards. This is an Academy's Award-like event where each ministry area hosts their volunteers for dinner and provides an entertaining show built around the work of the department. We spotlight certain workers through stories shared by children and adults in their area of ministry. The stories that these people share of how God has used the faithfulness of a particular volunteer to impact their lives are the highlight of the evening. All volunteers receive a special gift thanking them for their service. This event is a large and expensive production, and purposely so. Our intention is to communicate the great value we place on our volunteers by giving them a night to remember. A critical question. No one reading this book will ever have to ask if they're working in their ministry. That's what we do. The critical question that we all must ask is, am I consistently carving out the time to work on the ministry? All great athletes watch film of their performance on the field. All great athletes spot problems and seek to correct them. And all great athletes celebrate their victories. If that much planning and effort is expended on a ring or a trophy, how much more should we expend to impact someone eternally? Improving your game discussion questions. Does your present meeting structure allow time for sharing learning experiences? What percentage of your meetings is spent simply downloading information? Discuss ways you can effectively encourage learning throughout your organization. How much of your time do you spend just working on what is happening in your weekly programming versus discussing overall strategy? Make a list of issues your team needs to discuss that don't directly impact what happens in your weekly programs. For example, how you reach outsiders, increasing small group participation, identifying what's not working, developing a hiring philosophy, etc. Would the members of your organization say that their contributions are valued and that time is taken to properly honor these contributions? In what areas and in what ways could you improve in this area? Identify a specific win you could celebrate with your team. What would that celebration look like? Now, put it on the calendar. Epilogue, a final challenge from Andy Stanley. Your ministry is perfectly designed to achieve the results you are currently getting. If you are satisfied with your results, then there is no sense in complicating your life with these seven practices. But if you are ready for change... If you see a need for improvement, then the principles in this book will give you traction as you press on toward your preferred future. At North Point, we have found that each of the practices anchor the organization to specific components of our mission and strategy. For example, clarify the win fuels our momentum. Think steps, not programs, protects our alignment. Narrow the focus points us towards excellence. Teach less for more guarantees that we stay relevant. Listen to outsiders keeps us focused on growth. Replace yourself assures us of longevity and work on it positions us for discovery. Whether you have identified them or not, your organization has established some practices of its own. There are certain assumptions and rules that govern your decision-making process. Every organization has them. You may not be able to articulate them all, but you know when you have bumped up against one. Somebody always reacts. No doubt, some of your organization's practices have been challenged as you work through these pages. So now what? What's your next move? 
I suggest picking one, maybe two of these practices and begin teaching them to your leadership. In addition, look for opportunities to model the principle you are highlighting. For example, find one unfocused environment and focus on it. Preach a one-point message. Spend an entire planning session clarifying the win for one program. In other words, involve people in the process of discovering the value of these practices. In addition, when you discover a current practice that needs to be abandoned, name it and then get your team to buy into discarding it. For example, if instead of teaching less for more, your communicators have a tendency to teach until the time runs out, talk about it. Develop your own phrases to describe what should and shouldn't be done. If your ministry has a history of leaders entrenching themselves rather than replacing themselves, talk about it. Contrast the two. Clarify what you are abandoning as well as what you are embracing. If you will make these seven practices the grid through which you evaluate and plan, they will enable your ministry to emerge from the fog of misinformation and emotion that impede your progress. I've always taken comfort in the fact that Jesus said he would build his church. I find this comforting because he promises to do the heavy lifting, while my responsibility as a local church leader is to simply to keep in step with the Savior. Our prayer is that these steps will help you do just that.